Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, joined today by Jeremy Daly, one of the biggest serverless advocates and consultants in the space. We have started initiatives, including serverless reference architectures for AWS just recently, off by non-weekly news serverless newsletter, serverless chats podcast, and some open source tools such as Lambda API, serverless MySQL, the Data API client, and the DynamoDB toolbox, to list a few. Jeremy has an extensive background as a senior technology leader with 20 years of experience managing the development of complex web and mobile applications for domestic and international businesses. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's really great to have you here. Let me start off by saying it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, you know, you've been someone that I've I've kind of aspired towards uh, seeing all the things that you're doing in the community. So it's kind of led to a lot of the my own personal content creation around serverless. So uh, you know, thanks for doing all that. Well, I appreciate that. No, I mean, and I've been following you for quite some time as well. So very impressive the things you're working on. Um, you know, so congratulations with everything you're doing over at Serverless Guru and um, all the stuff that you're working on. You're producing some great stuff as well. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Just to kind of kick things off, uh, you know, how is everything going currently? Like, what are what type of things are you looking at? What are you working on? Well, uh, trying to avoid the coronavirus. That's the uh, that's the big one. Um, but uh, yeah, no, just doing a lot of work. Um, you know, back in uh, early uh, earlier this year, I started traveling quite a bit. I was I was doing a lot of conferences, and then uh, then the coronavirus uh, pandemic hit, uh, and I pulled back from that. So uh, it gave me an opportunity though, because I was actually making some extra time to do some of these conferences. Conference, uh, you know, some of this conference traveling. So some of that extra time actually gave me the ability to finally, you know, sit down and focus and work on a few of these initiatives that I've been trying to do uh, for quite some time. So obviously, the podcast uh, has been going now for a year, uh, which is kind of crazy to think about, you know, all those hours of recording <laughs> and all those uh, amazing people that I that I had the uh, the uh, amazing opportunity to speak to. Um, the newsletter is creeping up on issue number one hundred, um, and to think about how much you know, how many articles I've read, and um, you know how much work has gone into that every week uh, for the last you know ninety seven weeks or so. Uh, is is kind of crazy, um, and then because you know I, I I love the open source stuff and and just you know we're at a point with serverless where there's still a lot of gaps in the tooling and things that people need to do, and so I I built a lot of you know projects that would help you know solve my own problems, and then as they became a little bit more mature, um, I would open source those. So like you mentioned in the beginning, I do have a few uh, open source projects that uh, I've been able to you know. Put a little bit more effort into now that I've had a little bit more time, um, and because I'm a glutton for punishment, and I decided, hey, we should do more. Um, I've got you know the serverless reference architectures that just came out, as you mentioned, that uh, that has a lot more work to be done on. That's just scratching the surface of what's possible there, and uh, and I have um, a couple of new things that uh, maybe we can talk about a little bit later. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I know some of the uh, the open source stuff that you you released. I think it was the serverless MySQL. Wasn't that kind of like predating some of the AWS uh, tooling? Have 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 you done a few of those um, where you kind of built this out and then AWS has come and kind of built their own version of it? Absolutely. And again, I think I just said this on a recent podcast of mine where you're not a true AWS user unless they have built something that you've already built um, and made it obsolete. So, uh, and I actually joked about this with Chris Munns uh, back at reInvent. So when they release RDS proxy, you know, the, now that's now GA, 
Um, essentially, that's the problem that serverless MySQL was trying to solve because serverless MySQL, um, you know, as you know, when you connect from a Lambda function, you can't use connection pooling. Um, you can do connection pooling within a single Lambda function, but you're essentially just wasting extra connections. So you typically want to have just one connection per Lambda function. But if you do spike or you get some zombie connections, then it doesn't manage the connections well for you and, and those will drop off uh, and you won't be able to reuse that connection, although your, your uh, RDS instance will keep that connection open. So what's really great about what they did with RDS proxy is now, you know, you have that connection pooling that happens on the proxy side, and you can just, you know, kind of hit up against that proxy from as many Lambda functions as you need to. Um, but what I did find, though, that even though they they released that product, and I'm very glad they did, because I think it's a very solid solution to um, an issue. Um, I do still have a lot of people who like serverless MySQL. I still use it um, because... One, the RDS proxy can be a bit expensive, um, you know, depending on what you're doing, and uh, and sometimes a little bit overkill. But also the interface, you know, the the, the MySQL node um, package. Um, I think it's Doug Wilson who did it. Um, that's probably the wrong name, but uh, it's awesome. It's a great client, but it's you know a little bit clunky in terms of modern JavaScript and you know using async await. The transaction stuff isn't too great. So there's a bunch of things that I built in there as well. That just make those things easier, um, make it a little bit more modern, and uh, it just makes it easier for at least for me to work with it. And, and some other people have have told me that as well. Um, and then the other thing that I that I did was the um, was called the Lambda Warmer, and this was actually something where Chris Munns and I met in Boston maybe two and a half years ago or something like that uh, at a startup day. And we were talking about um, you know that that issue with keeping Lambda functions warm. And and even though cold starts were still not a huge problem, they they were for VPCs at that point. And depending on what you were doing, um, you really did need something in in some cases in order to keep that connection warm or keep that Lambda function warm. So I built this package based off of some of the recommendations that AWS was giving at the time. Um, and then they came out with provision concurrency, right? So that's another thing that again solves that problem. Now since then, I stopped using Lambda Warmer a very, very long time ago. Um, I know some people still use it. Uh, I don't use provision concurrency um, for anything major right now, uh, simply because most of what I try to build, I try to build very, uh, you know, very efficient on the front end. So if it does require a synchronous response, then that runs very quickly. And then you hand off any of that heavy lifting to asynchronous background processes. Um, so I find that cold starts for me at least aren't much of a problem. But um, but anyways, those are two projects that I built. Um, I have other things, you know, even like the DynamoDB toolbox, um, you know, it helps write code and it helps make it easier to, to interact and, and build single table designs in um, in uh, DynamoDB. Uh, and of course, you know, the DynamoDB or the NoSQL workbench is something that uh, I'm sure will progress where it will you know, eventually, you know, you'll make a choice whether or not you want to use something like that, or you want to use the code generation in, uh, you know, in the NoSQL workbench. But, but yes, it is, it is, uh, it, it's almost, um, uh, it, it's, it's actually kind of uh, satisfying when AWS builds something um, to fix a problem, you know, that, that exists, because again, that alleviates some other dependency that you typically have to have. Um, so uh, I, I love RDS proxy. I love provision concurrency. I think those things work really, really well. Um, but if you want to fall back on some other libraries, you know, you always have that option. Yeah, I know that the uh, the Lambda warmer situation, um, the ability to do asynchronous responses, as you said, um, or even just keeping your package sizes really small. And I feel like those are some almost like maturity, right, in the space where we're, we're starting to realize like, before, you know, it's like, yeah, just package all your node models up, use all these third-party dependencies, it doesn't matter. Um, and, and the idea behind, like, serverless maturity and being able to just 
uh, have these new things starting to come about, such as provision concurrency, as you said, um, but also just the like, idea of like, if you have your packages small, um, then the cold start issue kind of goes away. Um, and being able to see that and, and see how the, the community and also just like uh, developers in general are starting to catch on to these different uh, nuances of building serverless applications. And so with that, is that, is that part of the uh, reason behind the serverless reference architectures? Is it kind of to give people these type of blueprints that have been proven to work? Yeah, I mean, I think the, unfortunately, I think the serverless reference architectures project is about a year too late. I mean, it was uh, the end of 2000, was it the end of 2018 or the end? I I think it's been two years since I wrote um, the original, I wrote an article called serverless microservice patterns for uh, AWS. And essentially that outlined, you know, nine or 19 patterns that were sort of common things that I was seeing, because I always would be looking around, I'm like, well, how should I, how should I do this? Or how should I do that? And um, I never, I never could find really a good complete reference for those things or something that kind of explained how how each thing worked. So I tried, you know, I made an attempt uh, and I put together that list of patterns. Um, yeah, it was, it was 2018, which is crazy to think of. That is that far, that was that long ago. Um, but I put, put together that list um, with some reference diagrams and um, a lot of people, I had a lot of good feedback from that. So one of the most popular blog posts that I've, that I've ever written. Um, and people found it helpful because again, it were, was sort of these patterns that people were using, um, and having success with. And then other people could learn from those, um, and, and implement them themselves. So what I was, what I was hoping to do, you know, a year ago, and this is something that I, you know, I had conversations with a lot of people. I was talking to, uh, obviously Farah Campbell, who helped out dramatically with this and, and, uh, and Chase Douglas over at Stackery. They, um, they helped create, um, the, uh, sort of the, 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 I guess the canvas for for their tool, and they made it embeddable so that it was that I was able to bring that experience closer to the examples that I was giving, so that people could actually play around with that, manipulate SAM templates, things like that. Um, I had a, a lot of discussions with uh, Mike Roberts. That was one of the things he and I had talked about, you know, back in uh, New York City when we were when we were at Serverless uh, Conf New York. Um, and there's other people that have been involved in these discussions, like trying to figure out a way how do we put this all together. Um, and one of the biggest challenges that I I think people have is you get all these reference architectures that are drawn, and you have these you know nice pretty architecture diagrams. And AWS has invested a lot of energy into into making these nice little icons so that you can represent you know how data or how, you know, how a particular architecture works. Um, the problem is, though, is that it often requires quite a bit of lengthy explanation um, to, to explain, you know, what happens here, what happens there? Why is there a connection between service A and service B? Um, you know, what's the failure routes? Where, you know, where do, where do things go wrong? Where do things go right? And how do you deal with those? And I was trying to figure out a way, um, you know, to make that more, I guess, interactive in, in a way that you could uh, co- sort of explore the architecture as opposed to, um, you know, just kind of read about it. So uh, several months ago, I started working on interactive architectures. And if you go and you check out the reference architectures now, you'll see you can actually click on an individual service within the reference architecture, and it'll bring up a little description of what it is and, and why it's there. Um, and then it highlights all the steps and all the connections between the different 
different services and explains, you know, why this works this way, um, you know, whether it's a synchronous or asynchronous connection. Um, and then also as it goes through those steps, you can see those different failure modes and say, okay, if it fails, what happens? How does the data travel in that way? Um, and so that's actually a project that is a, you know, is part of this because I needed it in order to, I think, achieve what I was trying to do with this. But at the same time, um, I want to share that as well. So I'm, I'm building out um, uh, an interface where people can create their own architectures that will be interactive and add the descriptions and add the steps. Um, and, you know, has some fancy animations where it will actually draw the arrows between the, um, you know, between the different components and stuff. So I want to actually make that available to other people who want to teach, you know, these architectures and whether they want to use them in training courses or they want to use them as, um, you know, just internal references or just put them in a blog post. Um, I do want to make that available because I, I found that to be, I think, helpful way or a good way to, to really grasp what's going on there. So this project is like a year too late. Um, but the funny thing is, is that I've seen a lot of posts about this. Uh, there's been some great posts on AWS. They've come out with, um, you know, the, the sample architectures um, and and the the, uh, the well-architected serverless lens and some of these other things that, that are really starting to uh, highlight and, and solidify these best practices. But I do think that that is a lot of information to dig through. It's still very sort of disconnected for some things. Um, and I wanted to find a way to kind of make it a little bit more approachable and then also a way that people could embrace through different ways. I mean, for the most part, AWS is going to offer you SAM templates or something through CloudFormation. But there's, you know, obviously the AWS CDK, there's the serverless framework, there's Pulumi, there's Architect framework, there's all these other frameworks that people are using. Um, and I didn't want to restrict that to say, well, here's an example in SAM, or here's an example in serverless framework or serverless.yaml. Um, so that's one of the things I wanted to do with the open sourcing is to say, you know, you want to build a scalable webhook. Um, well, if the Pulumi team wants to uh, submit code and show you how you would do that in Pulumi, um, great, let's have them do that. Same thing with Architect, same thing with you know the CDK or, or any other framework that wants to do that. So that's what I'm hoping to do now. And, and like I said, I feel like it's a little bit late, but I, I still haven't yet seen anything mature to the point where it is sort of that solid go-to reference for that. And um, uh, and I just was hoping that, you know, with the help of the community that that we could bring that to life. And um, and we've taken the first few steps. So hopefully that'll grow over time and people will contribute. And uh, it'll, it'll be an, a simple and easy way for people to approach serverless and, and understand how that stuff works. Yeah, this is really, really interesting because like the uh, the part that really jumped out to me there was the the interactive architectures part because that's it's really true. Like when you make an architecture diagram, you have this high level, this very complex system. Um, you know, the ones that are really complex, like a Lego.com or something that have been doing this for multiple years. There's like all this like spider web of services, and obviously uh, it's still cleaner than you know kind of a black box because you can see everything. But it's it's still one of those things where like having a new person on board on a system like that. Um, but this idea that you can have little helper tools and you can have like explanations inside of it and the, the interactive nature of that, I think that that's, that's really, really interesting. So you're, you're saying that you're, you're building a, a platform for this. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to think of a name for it now. Um, but I, uh, but it's, there's so much more that can be done there. And I started with just using AWS um, because that's the, that's what I'm focusing on there. But really you could, you could use any type of icons and, and the thing that's kind of interesting about that, and I, I don't want to take too much time to try to sell that yet, but what I've tried to build there was a way that teams or individuals or you know groups of people, whoever wanted to use this could take the result of it. 
um, and just kind of take it with them, right? It doesn't have to be hosted on, um, you know, on some server for, or I would not be on a server, but it doesn't have to be hosted, um, you know, by by me. Um, it actually, what it does is it generates everything as, uh, everything is embedded as SVGs and, and all the, the uh, JavaScript, all of the, um, all of the CSS, all of those SVGs that create the arrows and the and the images, that's all actually embedded into a single HTML file that can then be um, embedded, you know, can just be put in an iframe and, and hosted on your own site. Um, and the reason why I did that was because, again, I didn't want you to have to, you know, I wanted you to be able to use it internally for wikis, right? So maybe you have a private, um, you know, you have a private uh platform or whatever, where you host information, I wanted you to be able to do that there. Um, and then the other thing that was really important to me was having a non JavaScript fallback, right? I feel like we've become so reliant on JavaScript for front ends. Um, and while SPAs are great, and React is awesome, and Vue is awesome. Um, there are, you know, there's, there's reasons why you don't necessarily need all that JavaScript. So um, if you turn off your JavaScript, and you view those reference architectures, you'll notice that they'll still work. Um, there'll be a few features that are missing, obviously, the animations don't work and some of that sort stuff, but it, it, it should be a very clean fallback um, that gives you the ability to, again, still click and explore that. Um, so depending on where you are, you know, that's that's something that I wanted to make sure um, that we had. So again, I spent too much time talking about it, but essentially these are things that do not need to be hosted on an external platform. They don't need to be... Um, you know, always be, you know, doing a home run for that. So this is something that you can run locally, you can run offline, um, you know, you can you can host yourself. Um, and as this matures out, and I build out some more features for it, you know, maybe things like notes and some things like that might be added. Um, but the key here is going to be able to give you a really simple tool to build these diagrams and then quickly publish them. Um, and so that you can explain, you know, explain what's happening and, and hopefully use them to teach either other people or teach your team, you know, how a particular reference architecture works. Moving on to something a little bit more personal. When I was looking at the, uh, your, your website, jeremydaily.com, uh, you have a section for books. And so there's two categories that really stood out to me. Uh, the first one was productivity and the second, the personal and professional development. The second book on the list is uh, one of my favorite books, actually, called Essentialism. Um, and you had some other books uh, that center around focusing on less to get kind of more done. Um, a curious question I have, because you're doing so many different things and you have so many things in progress and you actually consistently do them. Uh, how do you think about productivity and how do you consistently stay productive while juggling these different projects? Yeah, well, it's certainly not easy. And I also have, you know, two, uh, two young daughters. I have a 12 year old and a 14 year old daughter. Um, I am active in soccer uh, coaching. I coach both the teams for my for my daughters, and uh, I, I was also the I was also the middle school coach, so the middle school girls soccer team coach this year. So um, it has been uh, it has been very difficult trying to um, you know kind of keep everything balanced as well as trying to get stuff done. Um, so productivity for me has been just an ongoing challenge, like a nonstop thing that I've been searching for the perfect answer for for quite some time and. Uh, um, uh, you know, back when I had my own web development company, I was probably working 70 hours a week. Um, you know, then once I had kids, it was like still working on Saturdays, but then Sundays were, we used to call them daddy days where like basically Sundays I wouldn't work and we would do something as a family. Um, you know, and then oftentimes I'd come home for dinner and then head back to the, to the office after the kids were, be uh, were in bed. Um, you know, so it, it's always been a challenge trying to find enough time. Um, and then, a couple of years ago, I started uh, keeping track of what I did, um, and I made a little app that actually 
was just a little uh, Slack, um, a little Slack app that uh, allowed me to kind of make notes about what I was doing during my my days. Um, and then I would kind of go back and look at that and say, you know, how much time did I spend spinning my wheels on this, or how much time did I spend doing this? And um, and I I was able to learn from that quite a bit. I, it was taking a lot of time to keep track of everything, so that was actually slowing my productivity down a little bit. Um, but I found that what was really interesting was. Um, that once you started to understand what it was that you were working on and how long you were spending on certain things, and this was everything, by the way, this wasn't just what I was working on for, you know, my work, this was, oh, I, you know, I went shopping, or I mowed the lawn or things like that, um, just to give me an idea of, you know, sort of where I was spending my time. And, uh, and I was able to use that to, to kind of look back and say, okay, where, what are the things that are going to get me further along? And what are the things that are just, you know, causing me to spin my wheels? And that, that let me um, sort of start delegating work a little bit better um, and realizing, you know, I shouldn't be spending this time doing this billing, or I shouldn't be spending this time doing, you know, whatever this project is, uh, and started, you know, sort of delegating that stuff. And that helped dramatically. But then where I fall into now, and it's kind of crazy, I don't follow it 100%. I mean, I was a big sort of GTD or the, you know, get getting things done. Um, I followed that closely for a while and tried to make my lists and, and close my open loops and all that kind of stuff. But what I actually found to be the, I guess, the the best way to keep focused um, was, uh, was after I read a book called The One Thing. Um, and that was basically just saying, like, what's the most important thing that, you know, you need to get done? Like, what's the, the most important thing you have to focus on? Um, and of course, it gets to the extreme. It's sort of like the essentialism book that you you mentioned. Um, it gets to the extreme, but I was able to find sort of a balance where now I can just say, okay, what's the one thing that I really need to get done this week or I need to get done um, today? Uh, and I try to just put all my effort into that, right? And so switching back and forth and context switching, you know, I know, I know you you mentioned this earlier, you know, those are really hard things to do. And so if you can just kind of lock yourself down and, and pick a a block of time to work on something um, and just focus on that for an extended period of time, um, you know, to get it done or at least get get it to it, you know, get it over a certain hump. Um, you know, that's always a really effective way, you know, that I found to do that. Um, and then the the sort of the tactical approach that that I found to to making that you know, an easier way to kind of get that deep work done um, is actually to use the Pomodoro method or the Pomodoro technique or whatever it's called. Um, and I know it sounds kind of like new age, but it, it actually works really well. And what you do is you just set a timer for 25 minutes and say, okay, for the next 25 minutes, I'm not checking email. I'm not looking at Twitter. I'm not, you know, thinking about something else. I'm focusing on this one particular uh, piece of work that I need to focus intently on for the next 25 minutes. And then when that bell goes off or when that timer goes off, um, you know, you take a short break five minute break, and then you go back. And if you have to keep working on that same project, you do that. Um, and I find that if you block off a bunch of time to do that and focus on one thing for a while, that you can get quite a bit of stuff done. And then you can have that mental break every, you know, 25 minutes, get up, walk around, I sit and play my guitar for a few minutes, sometimes, um, you know, just to clear your head a little bit, but you don't completely shift into some different context. And then it's much easier to come back after that little, you know, mental re refresh break. Um, and if you do that, and you do that throughout the day, um, you know, it's, it's pretty good, you know, a pretty good way to figure out how long it takes you to do things without necessarily tracking them. Um, so now you can just kind of say like, okay, I'm going to work on this and oh, it took me 
for Pomodoros to do. Um, and then that gives you a good sense of how long something like that might take you in the future. Um, so I've gotten pretty good at that. Um, and uh, it, it certainly helps me to to stay focused and figure out you know what it is that's most important for me to get done. Um, of course, when the fires come and a client calls or, or some you know something bad happens and you've got to deal with it, um, it can often throw that out the window. But the, the more I find myself sticking to that schedule and that routine, um, it really helps discipline me to get my work done. Um, and then, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, which is what we're all striving for, I think, is that balance where, you know, then I can spend more time with my family and, and do more things that are uh, are not necessarily work, but, um, you know, but but are just, you know, outside of that, but still be able to get the stuff done I want to and, and stay productive. It's really interesting, the mix of these things, because, yeah, I, I fall into a similar boat where sometimes I actually have a hard time taking breaks. Um, it's like the I, I'm gonna actually try the Pomodoro technique because like I'll end up you know being super deeply focused on one thing and I'll work on it until I burn myself out and then I'm a zombie uh, you know for 20 30 minutes and I'm just consuming anything that I can find to try to get my mind off of it to refresh. Um, but yeah, the idea of getting up you know taking a walk for five minutes, getting a you know refreshing your water so you're not dehydrated. Yeah, there's that that's gotta be a, a lot of benefits there. So. I'll take I'll take that to heart and try it <laughs> myself. Um, and then and then to kind of you know because this is the Talking Servals podcast, um, it's really interesting. I I wanted to make sure to ask these personal questions because um, I think you know not only am I interested in how and how you operate, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners are as well. Um, but then kind of getting to the serverless questions part, um, you know, the first one would be you know the philosophy of serverless. How how do you think about serverless and 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 what does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've gotten to a point, I started working with serverless now um, pretty extensively in 2015. So once once Lambda went GA, um, the company that I was at, I started working on a project um, that was using Lambda. Um, and then shortly thereafter, once we, we got API Gateway, then I started thinking about it less about sort of backend, uh, you know, event processing, and, and then more towards the synchronous aspect of it, um, and what was possible there. And and now, because I've, you know, and, and maybe this is the benefit of me having done so many things with serverless now, and explored these architectures and broken a lot of things and failed at a lot of things. Um, now I just every time I think about a new project, I wouldn't think about building it any other way than with serverless, you know, and so what often happens is that I'll go through and I'll, I'll be planning on a project and my immediate default is, all right, how do I build this with Lambda and DynamoDB and API Gateway or, uh, you know, EventBridge, what are, what are the components that I'm going to use? Um, you know, what is the architecture, what is the architecture going to look like? And that's my default mode of thinking now, um, you know, and then I, I know there are a lot of people, you know, they're like, you know, serverless first or something like that. And, and, I, and I love that idea. I'm just like serverless everything. And, and I have clearly had to, you know, fall back on EC2 instances for certain things or, you know, use Fargate or, or, or use containers for, for certain things. But for the most part, I just feel like serverless is the way now. And I think if you get into that mode of thinking, then there's, there's very little that you can't do with it. And even if there's something you can't do with it, there's probably some sort of workaround. And that workaround may be suboptimal for maybe the huge scale, like, okay, we've got, you know, millions and millions of dollars flowing through this business. Um, but certainly when you're getting started and you're building projects that, I mean, could still scale greatly, 
Um, sometimes some of those workarounds aren't the worst thing, um, you know, and so maybe you can't do machine learning or you can't do some of these other things quite as effectively in, uh, you know, in serverless. And maybe there's a, a longer processing task that it would be really nice if you could just do that synchronously. And maybe if that was offloaded to a GPU or something, then, um, you know, that, that would work better. But uh, but I find that there's a workaround, whether it's using a WebSocket or, you know, simply a, a polling thing or something where it can hand off work um, and can do background processing. And then then the client can you know sort of renegotiate that connection or uh, somehow get updated and notified there. So I think about serverless as just the way to build applications now. And I almost, you know, sort of like cringe a little bit if I'm like, oh, wait, if I can't do this with serverless, like, I don't even know if I remember how to do it without it in some cases, because there's just, it's just become so easy to build these things. Um, and, I, and I shouldn't say easy. That's the wrong word. It's become, it's become more, I think, um, uh, more interesting to build in these, this way, because you don't have, you don't have that, that nightmare maintenance scenario that um, you often get with EC2 instances and load balancers and all that other stuff. Um, and so for me, it's, it's a little bit more work up front to kind of plan for that and get that going. But eventually you run into that situation where now that wait, once you have it built, um, that the ongoing maintenance and the ability to then iterate on it just seems so much faster. Yeah, this is a really interesting concept because uh, when you mentioned workarounds and you mentioned, okay, I'm going to start with serverless, and that's that's kind of my approach as well. I'll always start projects now with serverless in mind. So I'm already thinking like you were saying, like Lambda Functions, API Gateway, or AppSync, or something like that. And then I've heard other people's strategies where they'll start with serverless and then they'll only add something like a container in EC2 if it's required. And so that's like that serverless first thing that I think you're referring to. When it comes to these workarounds where you go, okay, I've got this huge transactional uh, system happening and you know, maybe it's not going to fit into this like boilerplate uh, serverless architecture and I have to do some workaround type of thing. I think something that often gets kind of, uh, you, you can't measure it as much is that if you go, okay, this isn't a good use case for serverless and I'm going to build a workaround with a container and ECO2 instance, there's a whole bunch of downstream things right around that that sometimes don't get thought about like maybe this workaround requires you to run an extra script or something to do it or to add a couple extra services, but you're also still not having to do all this other, like the people that are managing the EC2 and keeping it up to date and, uh, you know, building AMIs and all this stuff. Um, how do you think about that? When you think about these workarounds, do you think that the downstream stuff uh, often gets lost or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that that's the biggest advantage of serverless to me is is this idea that once I build something that there's that the maintenance of it is so minimal going forward. It's not perfect, uh, right? And so, I mean, I just the uh, I, actually yesterday I was deploying a new um, a new change to uh, a series of microservices, and the development branch was able to deploy, passed all the tests, no problem, everything was great. The problem was when it went to staging. And there was something in staging that wasn't loading correctly. And what it ended up being was I had to put a workaround in for a Lambda destination using the serverless framework. And I had to, I had to manually add the, um, the event invoke source, or I can't remember the exact name of it now, but you can use the, the presetting or the setting in a function that just says destinations. And then you say, you know, on failure, and then you can specify the ARN or you can specify another function that it gets sent to. But I don't like to construct big long strings or, or use you know something like pseudo parameters. I'd much rather just use the cloud formation references. I feel like that's a sort of a cleaner way to do it. So I'd much rather just say you know here's the name of my DLQ dot use the get at 
in order to get, you know, in order to get that ARN reference. Well, you can't do that with the baked in version at the function level. But if you add a CloudFormation resource at the, uh, or, or, you know, extra CloudFormation re- resource, you can reference that function and then you can add that using the get at reference, which to me is just cleaner, um, you know, a little bit of extra code, but it, I think easier to maintain in the long run. And so what I realized was there's actually a race condition that the IAM role gets created after the event config is added. So the event config gets added and then you try to create the IAM role. It, it says it doesn't have permission to send you know, messages to the DLQ. So what you have to do is a simple fix. You just put it depends on within that extra resource. But those are the workarounds I'm talking about too, where like you do have to figure those out. And, and, but once you get those worked out, then I should never have to worry about that deploying again. And so it is something where it's sort of a mental shift to have to add some of that extra stuff to make it work. But again, I mean, those are things, you know, those are things you just, you need to do with, with developing in the cloud, right? We're not perfect yet. So those little tricks, things you hopefully discover and, and can work out those pipelines. But I guess back to your original question about maybe like adding, you know, a container or something like that. And then what's the impact of doing something like that? I think it's huge. I think that anytime you can be hands off on something, you know, that, that you, you want to be hands off on it. And if there's a few things where you're like, oh, by the way, you got to keep checking this, or you got to keep checking that just to make sure it works. And especially with the nature of serverless, you know, applications being so distributed, you know, you might have 15, 20, 30 different moving parts within some workflow. And if one of those is something that can fail or doesn't scale properly, and you have to deal with that on a constant basis, that just adds a mental burden that, that, you know, almost degrades the entire benefit that you get from serverless in the first place. And that's just, that's just something that, that I know I don't want to have to deal with. And, uh, and, and that's why when I said workarounds, I actually meant like figuring out a, a, a suboptimal serverless workaround that didn't need the container. You know what I mean? Like maybe I do have to split it up, you know, I do a fan out and split up into five different jobs because I can't complete the task in 15 minutes. But I would, I think I would rather do that than to fall back on the old way of thinking, you know, and use, you know, use some sort of state, stateful computing at that point. That's a really interesting, uh, yeah, really interesting perspective on that. It kind of leads to the next question, which be, you know, these type of uh, nuances, like you said, like you were trying to do something, it depends on finding that out, going down that rabbit hole, that takes a lot of time. For areas that may be left to solve in serverless, do you feel like those type of pieces need to be just, you know, hit against for multiple more months, years to kind of uh, keep the maturity like higher so that other people that are coming into the space don't have to do this. What would you say was the biggest challenge for serverless currently? I think serverless is not there yet. Um, I mean, as, as far as it has come, and if you get a deep knowledge of it and you, and you get into the ecosystem and you understand it and you're willing to do the research and, and sort of make those trade-offs, like we said, and, and be able to learn how some of these things work, then those little tricks and those sort of you know, pain-in-the-butt workarounds, you, you'll figure those out and you'll be able to implement them. But the difference between you know, maybe someone developing on EC2 instances or someone doing containers is for most people who are in those spaces, it's just second nature, right, to build it a certain way and, and they can be productive instantaneously, right? So maybe it's a few hours of planning and then they start coding. I have completely changed the way that I do development and planning now where I will spend, you know, a couple of days planning out how I want the serverless stuff to work. And I will, I will run some tests. Um, I'll do some load tests. I'll, I'll play around with, you know, some failure modes and things like that to see how that works. 
And then once I figure that out and I get the pattern right and I, and I get the understanding right, then I'll go and I'll build it. And it will take me half a day to build something that maybe would have taken, I don't know, a week or so to build if I would have just you know, done it in a more traditional way. But I probably spent the same amount of time because I did, I did more of that research up front. But that's, I think, the biggest problem with serverless is there are so many nuances in there right now and so many workarounds and so many sort of tweaks that you need to do. You really have to understand the architecture and you can't just say, I want to build something that responds to an API request. You have to understand the, the complexity of the API gateway calling a Lambda function or potentially using a service integration and offloading that and then building an event pattern that's going to respond to an SQSQ or to event bridge or something like that. So there, there's a lot of complexity in that. And I think that if you just sit down and you're staring at a blank terminal window or a blank VS Code document, whatever, it's not quite as easy to just start typing. You do need to go through, in most cases, I, I'm sure you, you have these. I know I do. have bootstrap templates where you, you, you start a new project and you've got like two years worth of experience baked into a YAML file and into your, uh, you know, your TypeScript configs and, and uh, your, your linting and all this other stuff that you've got already configured and ready to go. You know how you're going to integrate Epsicon or Thundra or the dashboard or whatever, or you know, you know how you have to do your logging in order to benefit from CloudWatch metrics and some of that stuff. The average person just doing that, though, there's just so much to learn to get you there. And that's, that's where I think that promise that Werner made, where it's like, all you have to do is focus on your code. That'd be great if we could get to that point. And a lot of these primitives were combined into patterns for you. And I think the CDK SAR, um, you know, the serverless application repository, um, you know, serverless components uh, is certainly something that is that is pushing towards that piece. But it's just like all those best practices, all of that stuff that you just need to happen out of the box has to happen out of the box, and then just have the ability for you to write and maybe you know sort of connect a few services together. But that to me is is the biggest challenge we face right now is we are just not at that point where as a developer you can jump in and start writing code. You need to be a developer that can write code, but also need to be able to put an architect hat on and understand the interconnectivity of these services. And in many cases, if you start building anything that is real, you need to get really good at understanding cloud formation and how that works in order to build and configure the peripheral services that go along with a few Lambda functions and some SQSQs. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that the uh, the first thing that I wanted to touch on there was that plan more and develop less. So we've actually found this to be really true, doing these serverless migrations for clients and then being like, okay, here's your existing stuff. We're going to move it to serverless framework. We're going to build all this stuff out. And, you know, we've ran into the wall so many times doing this that we now start almost with that same approach where it's like, it's hard to open up VS Code and start writing stuff immediately. It's easier to just open a Google document and just start writing out, here's the folder structure. Here's how the files are laid out. Here's how the serverless YAML will connect to. These are the things that it's going to create. Here's all the resources that are required for this thing. What type of packaging are we using? What what's the observability? Like what we go through each one of those things now, and and that might take you know multiple days. But we're getting approval from the client. We're getting that that quick feedback loop, which before you know we might go down this hole for like two or three weeks developing this thing, thinking that these other pieces are going to fall into place, and then we realize oh no, the the packaging doesn't work properly. The the node modules are too big for how this setup works, and it's just a whole bunch of like reverting work. But yeah, you're totally right. It's like you build a lambda function all the services that are surrounding that, how you actually configure those things and build them out. And, and I totally agree that you're not only a developer writing 
uh, backend code, you're also like an infrastructure person. You're writing infrastructure as code as much and understanding the nuances of cloud formation and how you do the deployments and how you do local testing with all these things. Yeah, it can it can it can be a lot. I would say, you know, from my perspective, I would say, you know, it's definitely worth it for people to get involved in the space. And I feel like we're on that that kind of like front edge of, you know, this is like the forefront of serverless. Right now, you know, um, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this as well. It feels like people that jump into the space now are going to be uh, very far ahead as adoption continues to increase. And so that would be the first thing I would ask you is like, where do you see the adoption rate currently for serverless? Yeah, I, I think is a it's mostly a hybrid approach. I mean, people aren't willing to throw away, and, and they're not going to. I mean, especially enterprises or established companies, um, you know, have years and years and years of code written that run in traditional systems. And I think a lot of them are using the lift and shift approach to get them into the cloud, which for better or worse, at least gets it off of their on-prem and uh, gives them uh, some of the efficiencies of, of running in the cloud. But I think that you see a lot of DevOps teams that, are looking at serverless as a, you know, as sort of a management component as well. You know, you, you're writing Lambda functions that do security audits or do um, down dev services uh, at, you know, at the end of the day and things like that. Like that sort of use case, I think you see a lot of that now. I, I mean, I, I would hope that you'd have more companies like Lego, um, you know, that you mentioned earlier and Liberty Mutual um, that are just taking this full-on approach saying, if the cloud can do all these things for us and they can do them better than we can, I mean, what's the, what's the utility in trying to write and manage your own queuing system? I mean, SQS just works really, really, really well, and it scales really, really, really well. And if you think about you know anything you're going to build in the cloud now, if you think about the serverless components for them, I mean, think about an EC2 instance. If I want to have an EC2 instance that you know powers a let's say it just just runs a web server. If I put that into US East One uh, and I put it into um, you know a particular availability zone, so maybe I put that in AZ Zone One or whatever AZ One. Then if that zone goes down, I need to have a backup somewhere else. Okay, so now I put another one in you know AZ Two or whatever. But then what if that region goes down? Okay, now I have to go ahead and uh, you know put two other servers in some other region. And so you're you're constantly thinking about how to add that redundancy if you're using some of these more traditional things. With serverless, API Gateway is automatically distributed across all the different availability zones within a region, and it will it will share traffic between all those different availability zones. One of those goes down, you don't even notice it. Same thing with your backing Lambda functions. Lambda functions will run in across all availability zones, and your, and your uh, API Gateway will automatically route them to the right one. DynamoDB runs in multiple availability zones. All of those services, EventBridge, right? So you don't have to worry about the redundancy piece of those because in a single region even, you have a ton of failover built in if one of those availability zones go down. Now, you could go really hardcore and you could do multi-region, but in most cases, you probably don't need to. That's something you don't even have to think about when you're building serverless applications as opposed to when you're building something more traditional. So I think that what we'll get is more greenfield applications or the people who are more forward thinking are going to start at least thinking about using the services that are available to them, um, like the SQS queues, like you know, SNS and EventBridge and DynamoDB, and, and even if it's just RDS and managed RDS or Aurora serverless, you know, using those to power most of, um, you know, most of the complex things that are running. And then if they're going to write some code, 
and they say, hey, we really want to be on containers, then fine. But really, at that point, if you're just writing a little bit of, uh, of code to glue things together, it really shouldn't matter if you run it in Lambda or you run it in, um, uh, you know, in a container on an EC2 instance. So I, I do think that it's going to be very, very slow. I think you're going to have for the next 20, 30 years, people are, you know, EC2 instances are still going to be very, very popular. Um, and those aren't going away. I think Kubernetes has, you know, hit its stride in the sense where I personally think it's it's too complex, but I don't see that going away anytime soon. You know, I, I certainly see the the uh, different flavors of it with the different cloud providers, whether it's EKS or or you know GKE or whatever the other ones are called. Um, you know, in the new Azure one, I certainly think those are going to continue to be popular for for certain workloads. But I, I think the future is going to be that the people who are looking for a way to you know minimize the operational costs and hopefully get to a point where we don't need all that boilerplate code and serverless gets a little bit easier to um, you know to just adopt that you're going to see obviously that adoption curve go up. But I'd love it if over the course of the next you know five years or so you know you saw a, a majority of of people that are building new applications are going to be taking advantage of as much serviceful tools as they can because I think that that's just the future of the cloud. And to try to do it some other way just seems incredibly short-sighted to me at this point. I, I totally agree. You know, it's a great breakdown that you just gave. And I think the idea of like, you know, we have a whole bunch of companies that are out in existence that have built their own SQS and their own SNS and their own SES and all these things. And so their core business probably isn't a platform where they allow other companies to use their internal SQS system. So yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of like a lot of benefits that these companies can get once they actually start leveraging those. And what's really nice about it is that I can't even imagine like what my career would look like if serverless didn't exist when I started programming. I'm like a serverless native, so you know I started in like 2017. I did, you know I, I was working with JavaScript and all these things, and then uh, I was doing like more like front end. Started getting into like some back end, and right when I got into back end, before I could even really run a server myself, I was doing like uh, an Alexa skill or something. And then later on, I ended up coming back and I got into an operations team and got all the other other knowledge, which kind of rounded me out. But it's very interesting right now that people have this ability to kind of jump into something and bypass years and, and take advantage of systems that would take thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours and, and have and, and hundreds of engineers of, of top quality across the world. And so, yeah, so I guess for somebody that, you know, to kind of give a last last point here and then we can kind of wrap up. What would be your advice to somebody that's uh, looking to start in the space, that's looking to get interested in serverless or even companies that are trying to start an initiative? How would you recommend they go about it? Yeah, I mean, certainly for getting started in serverless, I mean, I, I would say you're, you're going to have a pretty powerful uh, or you're going you're gonna to be very marketable if you can if you can get into serverless and start understanding how that works. Um, I think that there are uh, a lot of opportunities uh, that are going to be available to those people. So my advice is definitely do it. Um, but uh, but in terms of getting started, I mean there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, you know, A Cloud Guru has a lot of good courses. There's uh, you know a whole bunch of other courses around as well. Uh, you know, definitely check out uh, Yen Trey's. You know, the Burning Monk. Um, check out his. Uh, production ready serverless course. Uh, that's something that'll just kind of get you get you going right off the bat. Um, but my, I think the the advice I would give though is don't you know don't skimp on you know, even though the abstractions are are starting to come uh, and we start we're starting to have abstractions that make things easier. Uh, don't fall back on those entirely. Like same thing you know like Amplify. Um, 
framework. I think the Amplify framework is great for you to get something up and running very quickly. Um, but I wouldn't start a business building Amplify apps without understanding exactly what it's doing behind the scenes. Um, because at some point, you know, for for real production applications, um, you're going to need to eject that and you're going to need to start making changes to it. So, um, you know, there is no getting around cloud formation or at least understanding how that works. Most of the frameworks that are out there now are either going to compile down to CloudFormation or are going to use the APIs that CloudFormation re, you know relies on. Uh, you know, even the serverless framework, they build some abstractions to get you uh, you get you the, the the API gateway and get you some of the event connectors and get you the functions. Um, but if you want to build a, a a DynamoDB table and deploy that as part of a serverless framework application, you know you you have to write the raw CloudFormation. You know, and have that, and have that there. Uh, and there's just so many nuances there. Whether it's again, it's under, you know, just with I guess DynamoDB in general. I mean, just the re- you know the retention policy, like things like that, like little things that um, that you should know. So if you're going to be building serverless applications, get familiar with CloudFormation. And I should qualify this: if you're going to be building AWS serverless applications, um, you know, then make sure that you that you get intimately involved or that you get uh, intimately familiar with uh, you know with the with the CloudFormation uh, language and 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 how that how that works. And then from a framework standpoint, I love the serverless framework, right? And I think that if you try to deploy with Terraform or something like that, that's just probably crazy. Um, if you do want to use a framework, serverless framework is great. Um, there are a few, you know, there's always issues with everything. I really like SAM as well. I, I didn't like SAM as much when it first came out, but now it is, you know, the serverless application model. Um, it has matured quite a bit and you can do a lot of things in there. Um, and of course it's native to AWS. So if you are only planning on building AWS, SAM is a really good choice. You don't have all the plugins, um, you know, that you do that, that whole ecosystem with the serverless framework, but, um, but there's still a lot of, um, you know, there's still a lot of good things that can, uh, that you can do with, with both of those frameworks. So, um, I would say, you know, again, learn cloud formation, learn how that stuff works um, and how that stuff is configured. Um, and then, you know, pick a framework to help you to, to actually, you know, deploy those, those applications. But I would say that's the big, that's my biggest advice is just don't shy away from YAML because you're going to need to learn it um, in order to, uh, in order to get some of these things up and running. Yeah, absolutely. I have, I've done my fair share of diving into uh, cloud formation uh, and even, even some of the abstractions where they use like uh, AWS SDK underneath it. Um, and then they, they're creating resources. And then you have to map the AWS SDK fields to what the CloudFormation fields are. And sometimes they're different. And it all comes back to like the, that like API that, uh, that AWS is exposing and understanding that piece. So yeah, I think that if you go the abstraction route and you hit any issues whatsoever, as you mentioned with like Amplify, for instance, if you hit anything at all and you don't know how the under, underlying system actually works or, or how the black box actually creates the stuff, it, it can be pretty difficult to figure out where to even look. And so I think that's great advice to start with CloudFormation and then kind of work outwards. And so we're coming to you know the end of the podcast here. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to shout the various projects that you have going so that you know, we can leave the listeners and they can have a kind of a follow up uh, after this is over. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And again, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the mostly what I'm working on now is I am trying to be sort of a big serverless advocate, get more people into this. Uh, and so I'm doing a number of things that, uh, you know, just sort of share 
not only what I'm working on, but what other people are working on. So my podcast is the Serverless Chats podcast, um, and that comes out every Monday. Uh, we've had some great guests on there. We've had Rick Houlihan. We've had um, you know, Adrian Hornsby talking about uh, you know active-active multi-region setups, and and we've had uh, you know um, Alex Debris talking about his book. And I mean, there's there's been a lot of really good guests. And if you go back and you look at that catalog, there's a lot to learn from these very smart serverless people. Um, you know that I've had the the honor to talk to. So that's a good resource for people. Um, the other thing I've been doing for quite some time, almost uh, getting to issue number one hundred is the Off by None newsletter. Uh, and that is essentially a wrap up of or a, an aggregation of a bunch of links um, that have been published about serverless. It's very, very much so focused on AWS. Um, I do like to mix in a few things, though, just around the industry and, you know, kind of what's happening with GCP and what's happening with Azure. Um, and as some new companies kind of pop up. Um, but really, the, the point of that is to just take this massive amount, you know, this fire hose of, of information and try to, you know, consolidate that down into something that is... Um, is hopefully digestible and, and doesn't take too too long to to go through. Um, I think if you click on all the links, you might spend some time, um, you know. But uh, but just to get a skim and, and high level overview, uh, hopefully that gets you uh, gets you something. Um, and then the uh, you know I've got my open source projects that I'm working on, um, and you can check out my GitHub for that. Uh, and then the serverless reference architectures project that is a, a new initiative that I that I did, and hopefully that will get bigger and and, and help teach people that way. Um, but the new thing that that I I am launching very very soon it's called Serverless Spotlight, um, and it's an extension of Serverless Chats. And one of the things I found with speaking all the speaking to all these amazing people uh, on the podcast is the fact that. Um, you know, in order to have a nice 45 minute long episode and, and go in depth, I mean, there's there's so much to explore with serverless uh, and, and in the cloud. And, and it's great to have those long conversations. Um, but there are a lot of voices that need to be amplified. There's a lot of new projects out there. There's, you know, there's whether it's an open source project, or it's a new update to some uh, product, or it's a blog post that somebody wrote, um, or it's just somebody who wants to share, you know, share their their passion for serverless. I wanted to use the platform that I have. And it's not a huge platform, but it, it it's more um, you know, than, than some people have. And I wanted to be able to use that platform to highlight people um, and essentially shine that spotlight on the people who are working on serverless and making serverless better for everybody. And that might be people from GCP, it might be people from Azure, it might be people from AWS, but it's also people from the community. Um, it's the developers that are working, you know, on it and and discovering new things and writing these great posts and making videos and um, and just sharing this their knowledge with people. Um, I wanted to give that, you know, an opportunity to amplify that. So um, that's just start very soon. Um, you can go to serverlesschats.com slash spotlight uh, to find out more about it and to sign up as a guest, right? So this isn't me reaching out to people saying, hey, will you be my guest? This is people, you know, submitting, um, you know, submitting uh, a, a form and, and saying, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to share this and, uh, and we'll start reaching out to people and get these recorded. Um, and the point of these, by the way, is to be very short, right? So five to 10 minutes, it's not meant to be a long, you know, 30 to 45 minute interview. Um, it's just meant to be short, just to kind of get them out there and create a lot of these so that hopefully we can amplify more voices, get people to discover just how amazing this, uh, serverless community is and how amazing serverless is in general. Um, and, uh, and hopefully learn something from it, you know, and, and, uh, and, and go from there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. And I, and I hope that, uh, I hope to see the episodes released and I'll definitely be watching. So, um, it's cool. It's kind of a five, 10, five to 10 minute format. It's very digestible, as you said. Um, and, and the idea that people are going to be submitting to you. So it's like, you don't have to, they don't have to have like some big Twitter following or something, or be some person at a reinvent talk to be able to get uh, a platform. I think that's amazing. So, 
Um, well, I, I think that does it. Um, you know, thanks again for being our guest, uh, Jeremy, on the show. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, and uh, I really hope that we get the chance to collaborate more in the future. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And to those listening, this has been the Talking Serverless podcast with Ryan Jones. If you like our show and you want to learn more, check out talkingserverless.io. Uh, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And of course, join us next time as we sit down with another fantastic serverless guest.